Dear congregation, let us turn in God's holy word to Acts chapter 11. Acts 11, verse 19. You can find it in, on page 1268 in your pew Bible. Acts 11, verse 19. We'll read through the end of the chapter. Let us hear the word of the Lord. Now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who, when they came to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, And a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Then news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. And they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. And when he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad. And encouraged them all that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. For he was a good man full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. Then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. And in these days, prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. Then one of them, named Agabus, stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. This they also did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. Amen. May God bless the reading of his precious and infallible word. We'll also confess what we believe in regarding the name of Christ and why we are also called Christian in Lord's Day 12. You can find it on page 40 in the back of the Psalter if you'd like to follow along. Lord's Day 12, question 31. Why is he called Christ, that is, anointed? Answer, because he is ordained of God the Father and anointed by the Holy Spirit to be our chief prophet and teacher who has fully revealed to us the secret counsel and will of God concerning our redemption. And, to be our only high priest, who by the one sacrifice of his body has redeemed us and makes continual intercession with the Father for us, and also to be our eternal King, who governs us by his word and spirit, and who defends and preserves us in the enjoyment of that salvation he has purchased for us. Question 32. Why are you called a Christian? Answer, because I am a member of Christ by faith, and thus am partaker of his anointing, that so 
I may confess his name and present myself a living sacrifice of thankfulness to him and also that with a free and good conscience I may fight against sin and Satan in this life and afterwards reign with him eternally over all creatures. As far as confession from Lord's Day 12 regarding what we believe when we say, I believe in Jesus Christ, especially the name Christ. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, the name Christ ought to have great significance to us who are called Christians when we confess, I believe in Jesus Christ. It's part of our very name, even as we could find in Acts 11, verse 26, that the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. And a Christian is someone who professes Christ, and someone who identifies completely with Christ and becomes a disciple of Christ. But the name Christ and a Christian must have three particular impacts in all of our lives. I would like to look at that, the name Christ and a Christian, with three thoughts. Christians, first of all, profess Christ's anointing. Secondly, Christians partake in Christ's anointing. And thirdly, Christians participate in Christ's anointing. The first thing I want to address you with is these Christians in Antioch were called Christians for professing Christ. But what does a Christian really profess about Christ's anointing? Well, the very name Christ itself means the anointed one, the anointed Messiah. And what, we, what do we then profess about Christ's anointing? Well, as our catechism points out, that he was ordained by God the Father, even from eternity, he was ordained <clears throat> to hold this office of being a mediator. And this is really an office that he is set apart unto. And in this office, as being a mediator, he's anointed with the Holy Spirit to carry out this office. As we've been looking at in our series of sermons on Hebrews, that there were many Old Testament offices, such as prophet, priest, and king. And these offices would also be associated with anointing when they would enter this office. They would receive the oil of anointing. And indeed, these prophets, priests, and kings were mediators between God and man in the Old Testament. The prophets would communicate God's word to the people. But there is a greater prophet who has come, and we are called in the book of Hebrews to hear him, namely Jesus. There were priests of the Old Testament, a priest of Aaron, of the order of Aaron, even the priests of, of the order of Melchizedek, who is a priestly king. And yet, Jesus is a better mediator than these priests and any king in the Old Testament. These priests would offer sacrifices to stay the wrath of God against sin upon the people of Israel. And yet, Jesus Christ makes one final offering for sin, as we could hear about in the passion of our Lord Jesus Christ over the past month. 
Because all of these offices were perfectly fulfilled in Christ in His one office of being a mediator. And that's why we often talk about Jesus as a mediator has a threefold office. One mediator, that's His office as a mediator, but there's three aspects to that office of being a prophet, priest, and king. You can't separate them because He is in that one office as our prophet, priest, and king. And we spiritually need each one to be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Now, when we believe in Jesus Christ and we profess His anointing, what we are doing is we are surrendering to Him as our chief prophet. I think of how a chief prophet is to bring the secret counsel and the will of God, especially concerning our redemption. And immediately after the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, we find these two travelers on the way to Emmaus. And on the way to Emmaus, we find them in Luke 24, and they're wrestling with what's all happened and transpired in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And all of these questions flood their minds. And Jesus is walking with them, listening to them. And He replies to them as their chief prophet and our chief prophet today by saying, O foolish ones, you slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into His glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, He expounded to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. Indeed, He is our chief prophet. And as our chief prophet, when our eyes are open to it and we receive the Scriptures from Him as our prophet, what did they say? Did not our heart burn within us when He talked with us on the road as He opened the Scriptures to us? Indeed, He needs to be our chief prophet and teacher. But He also needs to be our only high priest. The one who sanctifies, one who gave one sacrifice of his body to redeem us and to make intercession for us even today at the right hand of God. Isn't that what we also heard in the series of sermons in Hebrews, especially from Hebrews 7 through, through 10? Even in Hebrews 7, verse 23, we are reminded also there were many priests in the Old Testament. They were prevented by death from continuing. But He, He continues forever. And He has an unchangeable priesthood, even at the right hand of God. And there He's able to save to the uttermost all who come to Him. when He ever lives to make intercession for them. And He goes on to say in verse 26, For such a high priest is fitting for us, one who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens. One who does not need daily, as those high priests, to offer up sacrifices for his sins and then for others. No, he offered them once and for all. He is our only high priest. But he is also our eternal king. One who governs us by the word and by the spirit. One who defends and preserves us in the enjoyment of that salvation He's accomplished for us and purchased for us. What an encouragement 
before he ascends to heaven. He says, all power and authority has been given to me in heaven and upon earth. And in that power, he has the power to give eternal life that none should perish who come to him. Neither shall anyone even snatch them out of his Father's hand. He is our eternal King. The one who sits at the throne on the right hand of God, and from there he's putting all his and our enemies under his footstool. This Jesus Christ, whom we profess, is the only mediator, the only Messiah, the anointed one of God. And we confess and profess with our mouth and with our heart, I believe in Jesus Christ. But it's more than just a profession of our mouth. It's also a partaking in Christ's anointing. A partaking in Christ's anointing. Christ himself indeed is everything we just spoke of. But what does it mean for us to be Christian and partakers of Christ's anointing? If I ask you, why are you called a Christian? Indeed, you might say, because I made profession of my faith. I profess that Christ is my Savior and my Lord. And for that to be true, then we also recognize that Christians, true Christians, partake in Christ's anointing and become members of Christ. They become disciples who follow Christ. They come under Christ's identity. They become subject to Christ. Again, we think about how in Antioch, these first followers of Christ were called Christians. And many times we recognize throughout the Scriptures that they referred to themselves as brothers as disciples, as believers, as saints. But this is the first instant that they're called Christians. Now it's very interesting that in such a pluralistic setting, such as Antioch, that here they would first be called Christians. And this especially had to do with their identity. It was an identifying name. They were not Jews. They did not serve other gods? No, they were followers of Christ. And those who would follow Caesar in those days were called Caesarone. And there, instead of that, they, these people were called Christiani. It would be the Greek way of saying these are Christians. Rather than Caesarans, they were Christians. And it was to demonstrate their allegiance to Jesus Christ. They were followers of Christ. They were not followers of the Judaizers. They were not followers of the pagan gods. They were not followers necessarily of Caesar, even though they came under the subject of Caesar. But they were followers, first and foremost, of Jesus Christ. That's their ultimate identity. Because they were purchased by Him Body and soul, they belong to Jesus Christ. Sadly, many Christians today 
are Christians in label only, like a marketing label. We have Christian churches. We have Christian schools. We have Christian books. We have Christian magazines. We have Christian music and movies and so on. It's like a marketing label. But that's not at all what these Christians were. These weren't just some kind of marketing label in their society. This is their identity. To be followers of Christ and to have given their allegiance to Jesus Christ. So if I ask you if you are a Christian, the answer is not simply that I've made profession of my faith and I go to church regularly. Going to church doesn't make you any more Christian than going to an automotive garage would make you a car or a truck. Being a Christian means that you partake in Christ's anointing. You become a member of Christ. You become identified with Christ. And you want to be a disciple of Christ and, and follow the pattern and example of Christ. Because we are in Christ as members of Christ and Christ is in us by His Spirit. I belong to Jesus Christ. I could say in a very similar way I'm an American and sometimes I do, especially when I go to the border, and it's a lot easier to get across into the U.S. when I show my U.S. passport. Sometimes I call myself a Canadian, and it's much easier to get back into Canada when I show my Canadian passport. I don't think it would be fitting for me to fly a an American flag here in Canada, nor would it be very fitting for me to fly a Canadian flag in the U.S. And as some of you know, it's probably not all that fitting for you to fly a Canadian flag when, when you go to work on the reserve <laughs> or something like that um, because you might get chased out of there. It's because of your, the fact that you come under a certain umbrella and identity. But ultimately, it's more than just an identity. Even as a Christian, it's not some kind of marketing label. We are pilgrims and strangers here on this earth, and our ultimate identity needs to be in Christ. And to be a partaker of His anointing. What does that mean? That means we need to be born again. That means we need to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit and of fire and to be transformed in our minds and renewed. That means we need to be partakers of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit needs to live in our hearts and in our lives. And when He does, we become partakers of all of the blessings of that very truth. You see, the members of one household or the members of one community or the members of one nation, they receive blessings from, from the higher. And as they receive the blessings, so also in Christ we receive blessings as we partake of His Holy Spirit in our hearts and in our lives. What are some of those blessings I think of the blessing of, of joy. 
It's amazing here as you look at Acts chapter, Acts chapter 11. And as, they, as Barnabas comes there, first, first of all, these, these were people that were scattered abroad because of persecution. And this persecution arose there in Jerusalem when, under, when Stephen was stoned. And, and as they spread abroad, they came to Cyprus and Antioch and Phoenicia. And, and some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene. And, and they came to Antioch and they, they preached Jesus Christ. And as they preached the Lord Jesus, the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. And as this news came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, what joy filled their hearts! And they immediately sent Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. And when he came and saw the grace of God, he also rejoiced. He was glad, we read in verse 23. And he encouraged them all that with purpose of heart they should continue in the Lord. There was great joy when he saw the grace of God in them. When they heard of this grace of God and this joy, it filled their hearts. And it was evident also, even in these new Christians there in Antioch. And isn't that what happens when we receive the Holy Spirit? People, people change. I remember seeing a documentary once on, on a Muslim testimony who, who had come to faith. And he showed pictures of his family before they came to faith. And, and, and the women were, were all covered up and very sad in their eyes. And, and, and then as, after they were Christians, he, he showed us a picture of his Christian family. And, and you could see the joy on their faces and expressed this joy. This is a joy that comes from the blessing of being anointed by the Holy Spirit. As the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts and the Holy Spirit is given to us as the oil of gladness, even as we sang from Psalter, or Psalter 124, 125 in Psalm 45. Christians are joyful people because of the Holy Spirit shedding abroad in their hearts the very love of God. The blessing of joy, but also the blessing of, of honor and glory. This Barnabas, who was sent to minister to these new Christians, he was a man who was a good man who was full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, we read in the Scriptures. There was, there was an honor. There was a dignity to him. There was the, the glory of the Holy Spirit was shining through him. And when someone was anointed, especially in the ancient times when there was anointing of kings and so on, a lot of this anointing took place in order to be able to see the honor and glory and the fragrance that would come from it. And this is, this is why when Mary took this ointment to anoint the feet of Jesus in John 12, that 
that the whole house was filled with the odor of this ointment. And as Barnabas comes to Antioch and then later brings Saul and shows the joy of of how God had saved him on the road to Damascus and taught these people for a year, there there was the glory of God was shed abroad and the honor of God was at stake and the fragrance of Jesus Christ, it was evident in all of their ministry and all of their teaching. I wonder sometimes for us as Christians if, if we portray that joy of God's salvation. That our faces are shining as we're covered with oil because of the gladness that comes through that anointing of the Spirit. I wonder if it can be said of us that we were good full of faith, full of the Holy Spirit, shedding abroad the fragrance of Christ wherever we go. What do people see when they visit with us? What do people leave with when they visit us? Do they leave with the fragrance of Christ, the honor and the glory of Christ? The blessing of joy, the blessing of of the honor and glory of being a Christian, a follower of Christ, but also the blessing of the participation, profitable participation. As a matter of fact, in ancient times, wrestlers would be anointed and it would help make them more flexible and active. It would sometimes heal their wounds and So also in Christ, when we are partakers of His anointed, we who are dead in sins and trespasses are made alive by the Spirit. Our wounds are healed. We have strength to run. We have strength to fight the good fight of faith. We have power to participate in Christ's anointing. And that's why in our third point we want to see that indeed Christians do participate in Christ's anointing. Because when we are installed, as it were, into Christ's threefold office of being our mediator, we are given obligations and expectations. Just think about it once if you were in the workplace and your employer had, had trained you, he had even sent you to school and he had given you everything you need to do the work that he's called to do, called you to do. And then a week, month later, as you have a review come in, there were various obligations that net needed to be met. There were expectations on the table and you had to fulfill those because he had given you everything that you needed to do so. In a similar way, it is for a Christian. We are partakers of Christ's anointing and then we are expected to participate in that anointing. And that becomes evident in the very fruits of being a Christian. That comes in way of evidence of being, in a certain sense, a prophet, priest, and king under our only, our chief 
prophet and our only high priest and our eternal king. Notice how this happens with these Antiochian Christians. Verse 19. When they were scattered, what did they do? Did they close their mouths? Did they go away in silence? No, they came preaching the word. Now, many of them went and preached the word to the Jews only. Thanks be to God, there were also men from Cyprus and Cyrene who came to Antioch, and and they spoke to the Hellenists, those who were the Greeks. And they preached the Lord Jesus, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. What's happening here? They were prophets to the whole world. They were going and bringing the message to the whole world. Just as Jesus had commanded them upon his ascension. And after Barnabas came and brought Saul also with him from Tarsus, for a whole year they assembled, we read, with the church and taught a great many people. And that's why the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. That prophetic voice that came through those who were dispersed because of persecution, that prophetic voice that came from those who were from Cyprus and Cyrene who possibly even witnessed the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, when they came to Antioch, they preached Jesus Christ. They were prophets. They confessed Christ. Not only were they, in a sense, prophets, they were also priests. Notice that after a while, in these days, prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus, he stood up in verse 27, and he showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world. So what did these people do? Did they close up their um, wallets and seek to protect themselves and, and this famine that was going to come upon them? No, according to their abilities, they laid down their lives as a living sacrifice. According to his ability, they determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. And this they did by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Indeed, they were laying down their lives as a living sacrifice of thankfulness for all that God had shown them in the Lord Jesus Christ. How were they kings then? Well, think about this. Despite all the persecution, they pressed on and were greatly blessed by God. Verse 23, And when he had come and he had seen the grace of God, he was glad and he encouraged them all that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. You see, he knew, Barnabas knew that there were going to be challenges for these young Christians here in Antioch. And he encouraged them to purpose in their heart, to be willing to deny themselves, to be willing to take up their cross and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And to continue with the Lord. To continue in the confession and in the sacrificing of their lives out of thanksgiving. 
the impact of these truths that they came to confess about Jesus Christ had an impact on all their lives. It was their participation and the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And that gave evidence of the fruit. Many were added to the church. Many believed and turned to the Lord. As we're taking a journey through the epistle to the Hebrews, we often come across these little sayings that begin with, therefore. As the author to Hebrews sets before us a glorious doctrine, even as we found in the past month the glorious doctrine of the priestly work of Jesus Christ in becoming our high priest and laying down his life as a sacrifice, just to give you a heads up, as the series continues, we're going to move to another therefore. And that therefore will take us out of the deep chapters of Christology into the, in, in, in the study of Christ as our mediator to remind us that we are also to hold fast to our confession, to live by faith, and it comes with clear direction as to what it looks like. But this afternoon, I want to briefly take you to Romans chapter 12 to see this set before us. In Romans chapter 12, we have Paul coming to the end of his discourse through Romans. He has set before us the power of the gospel, set before us the reality of our sin and the consequences of it and how we can be delivered from it through faith in Jesus Christ and and how we can walk in newness of life through the power of the Holy Spirit and goes through these deep doctrines of election all to the praise of God. And then he concludes in chapter 12, I beseech you therefore, brethren, Christians, disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, saints of God, you fill in the blank. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You see what happens when we receive the Holy Spirit and we are transformed through the renewing of our mind. It has an impact and being conformed to the image of Christ. And as we have that, notice in verse 3, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. We are members of one body. In other words, we all partake in the same anointing as one body of Christ. All the members do not have the same function. Yes, we know that. Not all of us are pastors. Not all of us up here are preaching the Word. We have differing gifts according to the grace that God has given us. 
But we are called to use them no matter what He's given us. If prophecy, let us prophesy in the proportion of our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering or in teaching, in teaching, in exhorting, in giving, in leading. Do so with diligence. Do so with liberality. And he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. We are all called as one body to profess Christ, to confess Him, to be prophets. But we're also called to be priests, giving with liberality, showing mercy with cheerfulness. Verse 9, let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. In honor, giving preference to the other. Not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer. Distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. That's the priestly work. That's laying down our life as a living sacrifice for others. That's the priestly calling that God has given us in the anointing of Christ. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. We need to have a a series of sermons on all these things. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink, for in doing so you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not become overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Certainly, this means laying down our life as a living sacrifice, but it also means... It also means that we are to fight against sin. Because not a one of these things that we just read lies in our hearts and in our desires by nature. We want to think something of ourselves rather than thinking soberly about ourselves. We're more... concerned about our own integrity than we are about others. By nature, we love when it's good for us. We're kind when it serves us well. 
We become impatient in tribulation. We're not all that given to hospitality. By nature, we would never bless those who persecute us. By nature, we want to avenge ourselves rather than let vengeance be to God. By nature, we succumb to evil. But see, as anointed kings, anointed by the Holy Spirit to fight against sin and Satan in this life, means that we need to fight against our old nature. Not because we have some kind of power within ourselves, but because our risen Savior has given us His Holy Spirit and anointed us to be prophets, priests, and kings. So that in this life, we might begin and continue to fight. As Barnabas would say, that you would continue in it, in the Lord. And to know that one day we will reign with Him eternally over all creatures. Is this our life as Christians? If I asked you, why are you called a Christian? After reading Romans chapter 12, after hearing the testimony of the Antiochian Christians, would you blush in your seat? To put my hand in my own bosom, I would have to blush. To know that there's such a power given by God through His resurrection And for me, not to utilize that power, I blush. I'm sure you've all heard the story that I'm about to tell, maybe even for myself. I apologize if you did. But I think it's so fitting. It's the story of Alexander the Great. One night, he was struggling to sleep and And of course, Alexander the Great knew that he wanted to be the greatest of all. He wanted to conquer the world. And as sleep eluded him, he went for a walk. And he noticed one of the guards. He was sleeping. And he didn't even move by the time Alexander came to him but leapt up on his feet right when he noticed him. I have to remember that a guard on duty who would fall asleep in Alexander's army could be doused in kerosene and burnt alive right on the spot. But Alexander the Great fixed his eyes on this frightened young lad. And he says, What is your name, son? And the boy hesitated, frozen with fear. 
Alexander said again, Answer me, boy. Well, my name is Alexander, sir. Alexander said the second time, What is your name? It's Alexander, sir. He asked him a third time, What is your name? Sir, my name is Alexander. Alexander the Great stare pierced this young lad whose name also was Alexander. And he stared him down and he said, Soldier, either you change your conduct or change your name. And Alexander left the boy at his post. We don't know what happened after that. What is your name? Is it Christian? Do you dare to mumble it? Do you dare to confess it? Do you dare to say, I believe in Jesus Christ? And because of his anointing, I am a partaker of his anointing. With all my weaknesses, Yet I live out of his resurrection power. Because he lives, I live. And I present my life as a living sacrifice to him by the grace of God. And I go and I tell by the grace of God out of his resurrection power. And out of his resurrection power I fight the good fight of faith. Knowing that one day there will be full and final victory experienced through that resurrection on Judgment Day. You see, to live out of His power as a Christian is simply to let the power of Christ that is in us influence all of our life. I believe in Jesus Christ. Do you? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we confess that we fall so far short of what it means to be a Christian. To live out of the full realization of your resurrection power and of the anointing of your Holy Spirit. Forgive us, Lord. Help us to change our conduct, but never let us change our name. Lord, maybe there's someone here who's tempted to change their name from being a Christian. Lord, be pleased by your grace and by the power that's been vested in the Lord Jesus Christ, even at the right hand of God. Oh, Jesus, send forth your Spirit to arrest us in our pew and send us home equipped with power from on high to live 
as prophets, priests, and kings in this world in reflection of our Master, Jesus Christ. Amen.